Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Not Your African Cliché. Before we get into today's episode though, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher, where we are Not Your African Cliché, as well as SoundCloud, where we are NYAC Podcast. Don't forget to reach out to us on social media, Facebook, we are Not Your African Cliché, Twitter, at NYAC Podcast, and Instagram, NYAC underscore podcast. You can also email us at notyourafricancliche at gmail.com. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome to another episode of Not Your African Cliché. My name is Ifi, and today with us we have a very special guest, Yovanka. But before we tell you, I tell you who she is, and she tells you who she is, um, I'll let my other co-hosts introduce themselves. Hey everyone, this is Amayo. Hey guys, this is Onyeka, aka Yeka O. Hey everyone, this is Ife. Hey guys, this is Onyeka, aka Yeka O. Awesome. And so we have with us Yovanka, and I'm so excited to have her join us. Um, We are all excited. So just like a quick backstory, I discovered uh, Yovanka, a.k.a. Postcolonial Child, um, through the her podcast, um, Not Another Book Podcast, and which is a fantastic podcast, and you guys should listen to it. We'll um, link the, the podcast in the description box. But I was listening to an episode... That where they were discussing translation in literature, and I just found the episode very convicting. And Yovanka spoke a little bit about Lucifer Africa, and you know African Portuguese writers not being included in so-called African spaces. And I just found the conversation very convicting, and I felt like, oh, we need to talk about this, you know, in more depth. And so that's you know the backstory as to how we discovered Yovanka. So once again, welcome, Yvanka. And yeah, so just to kick off um, the conversation, I just want the other ladies to talk about just our awareness of Portuguese Africa. If we knew that there were African countries that speak Portuguese um, and how we came to that awareness. Um, I can go Yeka'o over here, and I knew that there were African countries that spoke Portuguese um, after watching Big Brother Africa, I think it was season five, where there was uh, Tatiana from Angola, Mm. and I was like, wait, what? Like, how is this even a thing? (laughs) How did I not know about this? Um, So that was my first exposure to um, Africans who uh, spoke Portuguese, and then I moved to no actually before i moved to indy in college um we had a student when i was graduating from cape verde um so then i knew that and then i came to indy and i met two people from mozambique and i'm like yo what like (laughs) my life has not been real so yeah i did know and those were my encounters with people africans you know who spoke portuguese or who speak portuguese rather yeah this is amayo um yeah so i've known for a while that there are some Portuguese-speaking African countries. Um, I think I first knew about 
Angola. Like a couple some years ago when I started following this blogger called Soraya de Cavallo. I've definitely destroyed her name. Um, but I, I thought it was so cool. I was like, wow, like we're really so diverse. Like Port- Portuguese, like what? <laughs> um mm. but yeah so and then later on i found out like mozambique um but i yeah i still don't know how many countries exactly um speak mm. portuguese but yeah it's definitely interesting the history behind yeah that we'll sh- we'll share that fact in the episode yeah. for the listeners to to go home with some mm, <laughs> social gatherings you're like this I is know. a fun fact <laughs> so exposed mm. uh how about you Fe? so i did know that there were that, that there are Africans who speak Portuguese. I can't remember when I knew that, but um, let me see. But I definitely became, I definitely came into contact with Africans who speak Portuguese in college. So at Mount Holyoke, mm. we have a large African Caribbean conglomerate and some of them were from Cape Verde. I think they were the only speaking Af- Portuguese speaking Africans at Maholik. I don't know. I don't think we had mm. anyone from Angola while I was there mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Mozambique or um, Guinea-Bissau. If anyone, what mm-hmm. do you think? I think it was only Cape Verde. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's when I really came into contact with Africans who speak Portuguese. Then when mm-hmm. I moved to London, one of my really good friends, Satya. Hey, girl, hey. Um, <laughs> I, met, I met her in London and she's uh, her parents are from Guinea-Bissau. She's like Portuguese. She's from Portugal, but her parents, yeah. Then, then my sister goes to ALU, African Leadership University. And when I went to like see her um, in Mauritius, she there were a lot of portuguese speaking africans there and mm-hmm. the school did a very good job of making sure that you know that's although the school is in english they made they did a good job of sourcing for and like recruiting africans from all over the continent and they also mm. gave them english as a second language like intensive classes so that they mm. could catch up which i was so amazed by but yeah so i met angolans um I met, um, I think, people from Mozambique there too, and yeah. So yeah, mm. nice. Yeah, so this is Fenwa, and <clears throat> I didn't know for a long time <laughs> that there were Africans who spoke Portuguese. I wasn't even really familiar with Portuguese as a language. So I will say that um, since doing this podcast and later on in life and in college, like learning more about you know other african countries and the different languages that are spoken and i will reference an article that yovanka wrote where she mentioned that you know there are six african countries that speak portuguese so totaling about 70 million people Hmm. and typically these people are excluded from spaces and platforms that claim to represent africa and the countries are let me see if my memory is still intact okay Mm. Countries are, <laughs> you know, we we have Angola, we have Mozambique, we have Equatorial Guinea, we have Guinea-Bissau, we have Cape Verde, and we also have, you know, Sao Tome and Principe. 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 Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I should just add that Equatorial Guinea was actually mm-hmm. colonized by the Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, and their mm-hmm. official language is Spanish, but also mm-hmm. Portuguese. Hey, see, did not even know that their official education. language is Spanish. Yeah. This is why you're here, Yovanka. Yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, like I said earlier, one of the convers- 
one of the reasons why I felt we needed to have this discussion is because Yvonka, you were speaking so passionately on not another book podcast about, you know, how passionate you are about there being more representation from, you know, our African brothers and sisters who speak Portuguese and there needs to be more translation and having these voices and experiences, especially in literature, like wow. having their voices represented. So do you mind just talking a little bit about that and why you're passionate about that? Yes. Um, so, I'm as I said before, I'm from Guinea-Bissau, which is an extremely small country. It's the smallest, pro I think it is the smallest country out of the, all the Lusophone African uh, countries, and also mm -hmm. this one of the smallest in Africa in general. And many of the narratives that come from Guinea-Bissau, like if someone wants to Google, they will find just stories about uh, narco trafficking. Um, people call it a micro stage, uh, a den of just drug dealing, etc., etc. And mm -hmm. what people fail to do and to to say is to give the context of the background as to why Guinea-Bissau, for example, since 1998, has not had well in the, all of the political history of Guinea-Bissau, we've never had a peaceful transition that mm -hmm. didn't end up with a coup or with the president dying of some illness or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, but there's, there are many reasons for it. And the fact is people don't talk about the fact that we've had a very brutal uh, war for liberation. unlike some other African countries where um, independence came about with, through negotiations. Mm -hmm. uh, so one thing that's very different from the experience of Lucifer in Africa is that, you know, the British and the French at, um, there was a point in their history that they realized that they couldn't keep their colonies, mm -hmm. whereas Portugal mm -hmm. actually fought to keep its colonies mm -hmm. um, because Portugal at the time did not have anything besides its colonies. It was the only way Portugal was able to even be a power player within Europe. Without its colonies, it was nothing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Portugal at the time had a fascist dictator who also, that was one of the reasons why he, he didn't want to let go and grant independence. But they had a massacre called Batapa Massacre, which happened in 1953, which is the precursor to, they sort of ignited the fire of independence. Uh, it was a massacre that killed thousands of people that Portugal never apologized, never, doesn't even teach in its mm -hmm. history books. Um, the same for its wars of liberation. When you turn on the TV in Portugal and they're talking about in, uh, the granting of independence, what they tend to focus on is on the Portuguese soldiers that they sent. A lot of them were completely unprepared, 18-year-olds, didn't have the weapons or the guns or the knowledge even to be leading this war. And lots of them, yes, indeed did die, but they don't talk about the effects they had in Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique, and Angola. Um, so there are many reasons of why the state of Guinea-Bissau is what it is. And the reason why I became passionate about literature and representation of Lucifer in Africa had to do with the fact that mm. many uh, people don't know anything about Lucifer in Africa. Um, and when you don't have a literary discourse, when you're not telling your own stories, it means other people can impose narratives mm. onto you. So, for example, um, I've met lots of people, Anglophone people, who always say to me, 
Oh, but Portugal wasn't such a bad colonizer. I mean, look at all the <laughs> what? Yeah, <laughs> all yeah. the time. One of the articles, like okay. they're good. Like they're they're, they're very, very good. good yeah, but, and they yeah. even and that's the thing. They even developed Portugal actually developed this um this reasons to why they're so good, which is called lusotropicalism, mm. which means that according to them, because they're closer to the equator, they are more benevolent and understand other people of color and everyone that lives below the equator. Which is totally ridiculous. Um, and lots of people point out, for example, that in Brazil, uh, Brazil is so mixed, thanks to the Portuguese. That's why there's no racism. All these things are just ridiculous lies. Um, the reason, there is a really high uh, propensity, actually. You will see that you find that the Portuguese mix way more with Africans and uh, Brazilians than any other colonial power, but of course these there's a power dynamic there, and of course mm-hmm. not these relationships no were not consensual relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so even me, for example, I'm a descendant. I have Portuguese blood. Uh, my grandmother, her father was Portuguese. On my dad's side, there are a mixture of Cape Verdeans, Bissau Guineans. Um, mar- they have married Portuguese sailors, etc., etc. Now, I can't really speak on the nature of those relationships, but of course, mm-hmm. they were not relationships they were just on just on love. Let's put mm-hmm. it like that. Um, the same in Brazil. Um, people have found that actually the studies as to why Brazil is so mixed is because in Brazil, mixed-race people marry other mixed-race people and produce more mixed-race. So actually, black and white people do not marry. Um, mm-hmm. So there's to show you that these are things that people have talked about. And as I was mm. saying, there is this narrative that Portugal was a benevolent co- uh, colonizer. People don't know about the atrocities that they have committed in Mozambique, Angola, and Guinea-Bissau, and other places. And mm. that's why I became so passionate about Lucifer literature is because if we are not able to tell our stories, and we, also if we don't get them translated, that means we mm. end up losing our own stories. I know I'm like I'm just I'm just so Yeka oh I'm so taken aback by the concept that a person would use colonizer and benevolent in the same like breath like how how please Mm -hmm. how it's ridiculous Mm -hmm. yeah and I think you know one of the points that were brought up in the not not another book podcast episode which I think it was episode five Again, we're going to link it in the description box. Um, is you know you made a point. You referenced like some TED talks, and you're making the point that translated literature is not just about reading story, reading different stories. It's more so like exposing people to like new, you know, different politics, you mm. know, other you know other histories and mm. you know other cultural phenomena, like. And that's why sometimes when people like try to dismiss the work that literature does, you mm. know, it's just it's just a an argument that doesn't make sense because this is how people learn. Yeah. And so if, you know, the knowledge and stories from Lucifone voices aren't like put into even with music as well, too, mm-hmm. if, if that isn't um, amplified, then we don't know about those stories. We don't know about yeah. those politics. We don't know about those cultural phenomenons. Um but yeah, that's why I was I was really in, taken with the you know the argument that you were making on the podcast. Um, 
But one thing that came up in preparation for this episode is, like we were saying before, like the British, you know, and French, like invaded Africa. And in a lot of contemporary discussions about colonization, like colonialism, Portugal is rarely mentioned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so sometimes there's almost this like temporary amnesia that, <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> oh yeah. It was not just like, granted, like you said, the British and French were big you know, power players and they, you know, occupied a lot of land. But, you know, I was just wondering, you know, why isn't enough weight given to the Portuguese invasion of Africa and why aren't they made to reckon with their colonial past, you know? Mm-hmm. And maybe they are being made in, you know, in, you know, on the streets of Portugal or, you know, whatever, yeah. where you those know, conversations on- are having. But like on the bigger platform and the bigger scale, when we talk about colonialism, you know, Portugal is never, as far as I know, is rarely mentioned. Well, I think there are several reasons because, in fact, I would argue that Portugal was much more of a big colonial power than any one of them because if you look... They paved the way. If, yeah, they paved the way. Uh, the biggest ex- explore, people exploring the world were Portuguese sailors. Anywhere mm-hmm. you can go, it's not just Africa. Um, they discovered the Americas. They discovered parts of Asia. I mean, Portugal had colonies in, you know, Macau, Macau, China. They still speak Portuguese. Hong Kong, they still have uh, influences of Portugal, Sri Lanka. And anyway, like there's so many countries even who have their names are basically Portuguese names. So Cameroon is, I think, I believe it comes from uh, Camarões, which means um, it means uh, prawns in Portugal. (laughs) You know, you're onto something, Lagos. Yeah, that's yeah. a Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Lakes, yeah. Lagos Lakes. is named after Lagos in Portugal. Portugal. Yeah. Portugal. So mm-hmm. there is a, a huge influence. Uh, Portugal has really played a huge influence in the world. It's easy for us to see how France and England mm-hmm. benefited immensely of colonialism mm-hmm. and slavery. So also, slavery mm-hmm. is different from colonialism. But yet mm-hmm. we don't talk about Portugal's role. Yet mm-hmm. the boats that took Africans were Portuguese. Go, 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 go on, please. I'm just like, I'm just like, go, go on. Yeah. And the most of the, the, I think Brazil is the country that has the most people of African descent that were mm-hmm. taken from Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's mm-hmm. an ex-Portuguese colony. So I think people just don't see it now because of the economic position that Portugal has today. Um, mm-hmm. Portuguese culture also is not something that has been exported outside of p- places that don't speak Portuguese. So in the UK, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's not a surprise that some of you are saying, like, you had no idea that Portuguese Africa even existed. And, you know, I, I kind of don't blame you because <laughs> when you see like, the size <laughs> of Portugal... Um, so I think some, these are some of the reasons. And in Portugal itself, there is an amnesia. People have no idea of the role that their own country played in, in the world. And actually, there's a really interesting debate that's emerging. Uh, in Lisbon, they want to build a museum that will be called the Museum of Discoveries. And okay. Black, okay. Activists, okay. black activists in Lisbon have been saying, that such a museum should not be built because what's going to happen is this museum is only going to glorify 
their mm-hmm. ex quote unquote explorations, but it's not right. really gonna right. be critical in terms of their role in colonialism and slavery. Sure. And once again, there's another reason why we don't talk about so much about Portugal's involvement is that there's not a lot of black people in Portugal. There's not a lot of black people that mm-hmm. occupy positions in, within academia, which I think is mm-hmm. the most important thing is there isn't a conscious conscious slash elite slash academic uh, populate black population in Portugal. Mm-hmm. You know, there hasn't been a long presence of Africans. It's only like I moved um, to, I was born in Lisbon, but moved to Guinea-Bissau mm-hmm. until the age of six. And I left because there was a civil war and I moved back to Lisbon in 1998. We were the only black family in this neighborhood called Kelush. The only black family, the, the neighborhood was just full of white, retiree Portuguese people. Um, I think by 2003, all of, the whole neighborhood was black. Uh, oh. If you go to Portugal now, you will see so many black people. You will be like, you, you will feel like there's more black people in Lisbon than there is in France and London. It's mm. incredible. And that, what, that just wasn't the case when I was when I was little, it, there were no black people at all. And even... You know what the, what's the, what cause, the cause for the, for the increase? They, in yeah. Percentage. Well, it's for economic reasons. And uh, there are more people from Guinea-Bissau who have moved as a, as a result of the 1998 civil war. Um, mm-hmm. There's been an increase in the Cape Virgin population also because uh, they, there was a few famines uh, in Cape Verde, which made more Cape Verdeans move for opportunities to uh, Portugal. Uh, Angolans as well, after the war, wars of independence, there were a few Angolans and Mozambiques that moved to Portugal, but this all for economic opportunities, all fleeing either from some type of unrest. Um, mm. Yeah, so those, those are some of the reasons as to why you have a bigger African presence. But the problem is, these generations, um, because they, they tend to be the poorest, um, the ones that don't have the means, it means that not enough generations are multiplied in order for generations to accumulate wealth, to start entering academia, to start entering schools, to start being in positions of powers. So we don't have, for example, there's no politician in Portugal that is of African descent. There are people that are of, let's say, Indian descent, Brazilian descent, but you don't see that. But you see the impact of this uh, migration in music. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Kuduru or with uh, Afro House. Yeah. Many people think that Afro House comes from South Africa. Yeah. It does, but the real, the precursors to Afro House actually started in Angola. Um, mm-hmm. And there's this famous song called uh, Sound of Kuduru in which M.I.A. performs. And she actually made it, she made the song so popular around the world that people started, they started listening to Kuduru and paying attention to the music coming from Angola. And wow. this was done, it was started, uh, the song was created by this group called um, Buraka Sound Sistema. And their name, Buraka, comes from a, this poor, dilapidated neighborhood in Lisbon called Buraka. And that's mm-hmm. where all the immigrants used to live. 
uh, where the police was even afraid to go, where nobody like would be caught dead even at, at night, certainly not in that neighborhood. And mm. the group is actually made, it really shows you the diversity and I think even what, what the real Portugal is. I think in the group you have an Angolan, you have this girl who's from uh, Brazil but born in Portugal, you have this guy who has Indian Asian origins but is Portuguese, you have this white guy who's mm. Portuguese. So. It really shows that actually when we think of Portugal, there's, there has been this idea that Portugal is all white. But if you mm. go now to Lisbon, the average Portuguese is not a white, a white guy, actually. It's the guy that comes from Angola, from Mozambique, that comes from Brazil. Uh, even the, the Portuguese language has had to adapt and change because of these immigrations. Mm. Because Brazil mm. has a large population. The, uh, the highest number of people that speak Portuguese are actually Brazilians. Mm -hmm. So as a result, mm -hmm. the Portuguese language had to adapt certain elements of Portuguese Brazilian, right? Mm -hmm. So what we speak now is not even Portugal, Portugal Portuguese. <laughs> We're speaking Brazilian <laughs> Portuguese, you know? <laughs> so these, but these are things that in the consciousness of the average white Portuguese, it's, it hasn't really... Mm -hmm entered their minds. They, we haven't actually realized that the Portuguese identity, um, and I think one of you circulated this really good article about how Portugal is, is colorblind, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because there's so many elements within Portuguese culture, you know, which are obviously not from Europe, mm. you know. Mm. But there's no recognition. I mean, you, I'm sure you've all, you all know what Nando's is, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Peer, 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 peer chicken. Yep. The and sauce. Yeah, I know. One of the students here, he's from Mozambique, and he's always telling me about like the barbecue in Mozambique. Like, <laughs> he's always talking about the chicken, and I'm like, wow, this chicken must be mad. Like, is <laughs> <laughs> it the actual chicken? <laughs> Mozambican <laughs> bread chicken. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. I, I it's called, yeah. we call it churrasco. And basically, that's what Nando's yeah. is. There's, there, there's nothing special, basically, about the chicken. It's just, shirashku is basically <laughs> just, it's the marinade and you just just grill it. Really. It's just grilled mm -hmm. chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I did nothing special about the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, but I, you can, anybody can do a shirashku at home. Like, you really don't, mm. <laughs> you don't need anything special to it. Mm. And, you know what you were saying earlier about the Portuguese that's currently spoken. Um, it made me think of, you know, the next question which I had is if there's a global underappreciation of Portuguese as a language and if that affects, you know, you know, what gets translated or, mm -hmm. or not, because, um, yeah, because they are, like you were saying, like, you know, Portuguese, uh, sorry, Brazilians are the largest population that speak Portuguese. Um, and so do you, do you mind talking about that? Because I know other than host being one fourth of another, not another good podcast, you're also a writer, you're an editor, um, you're a translator based in London, and your poetry has been published in Brutal Paper, your translations in Jalada and your writings have been published in The Guardian, Afrida, you know, you know. <laughs> but you know, listeners, you get the point. Yvanka, you know, she's a she's a bad bitch. Bad, bad bitch. Um, but yeah, if you could speak to you know how you know if that factors into the works you translate and whatnot, like Portuguese as a language, how it's seen. Well, 
I, there's two things. So Braz, Braz, the Brazilian market is, is a separate market from the Portuguese African market. And Portugal is another market. So, for example, uh, I don't think there's such a distinction between, let's say, let's say France and Francophone Africa. Um, because they don't have the equivalent of a Brazil, let's put it like that. Mm. So Brazil, for example, is a, it's its own market. So literature mm. coming from Brazil has been translated in a lot of languages. But literature coming from Lusophone Africa is not being translated at the same rate. Uh, Portuguese people, or in Portugal, publishing houses will, are more likely to publish Brazilian authors and writers and to do translations than they are from Lusophone Africa. Um, but funny enough, so um, Brazil, for example, you might know Paulo Coelho. He's the one who wrote The Alchemist. He's this huge, amazing writer that he's known all over the world, and there's many others. Um, but Brazil is big enough to be his own market, even if they didn't translate. You know, it's enough that within Brazil you're published. All of Brazil, all of Portugal, and Lusophone Africa will know. So one of my favorite Brazilian writers. Uh, George Amadou, he's not very, I'm pretty sure he's not very well known unless you're really into like Portuguese literature. You would know him, but if you are in Portugal and you say George Amadou, every, everybody knows who you're talking about. Everybody can point to one of his books. Um, whereas in Lucifer Africa, it's much difficult. People who are the writers, they tend to all be descendants of Portuguese settlers. I was about to wow. say that. <laughs> So when they say writers, you realize they're not black. They're actually yeah. white, white Africans. Uh, so in Mozambique, one of the biggest writers is called Mia Koto. He's Port- he is Portuguese descent. Um, in Angola, uh, José Eduardo Agulosa, he actually won the Literary Award, Dublin Literary Award recently in 2017. But he's also white. Um, and Cape Verde, oh my gosh, it's, it's extremely hard. I mean, mm-hmm. if anyone is going to mention, say, oh, I read Cape Verde literature, or oh, I know a Cape Verde writer, they're probably going to mention someone who is wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this bias, and I think it points as well to a bias of the publishing industry mm-hmm. in Lucifer mm-hmm. Africa and in Portugal, because they're mm-hmm. more likely to obviously publish somebody who's white than somebody who's black. But at the same time, writing is... Anybody can write. Anybody can start writing. But to be a good writer, I think, requires a certain type of privilege. You know, sometimes, not always. But obviously the person, the person who has the best contacts to publishing houses, the person who has the money to go in a good writing retreat, to invest resources, to learn how to write better, et cetera, et cetera, will be somebody who has, you know, a historical type of privilege. So even me, I've been trying to find what is the new generation of black writers in Lucifer in Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult. I have not met somebody, you know, as of yet, who is in their 20s that is a writer. And, you know, and I don't, there, we have, for example, in Lucifer in Africa, you find more black poets you won't find as many fiction writers. Um, and the answer to it, I don't know. I sometimes think, is it because 
you know, all, almost all Lusophone countries had wars of independence. Angola, after his war of independence, had 30 years of civil war. Guinea-Bissau, yeah. since 1998, has had... You, you basically could just say it's been a, a state of brokenness since 1998. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really hard to, for me to say. Uh, we are... There are the, obviously, this is, we're talking about literature, but, you know, if you wanted to talk about visual arts, you know, Angola and Mozambique, even Guinea-Bissau, are doing extremely well in those fields. Music, we have musicians that have exported their music and their genres, saying, to the outside world. But when it comes to literature, there's a real lack of it. Mm. You know, it's very, very hard to see where, where is the new generation. But that doesn't mean they're not black writers there's definitely some um so it is yeah i almost forgot, i forgot the question to be honest <laughs> i'm not trying to go on i'm like where am i supposed to go so oh yeah translation so yeah it's hard to find it's hard to find material to even translate and for example i'm from guinea bissau like it's literally the first novel to come out of guinea bissau in english Right, wow. but wow. You, novel ever, ever. But wait, to be translated, to be yeah, translated, which like, means to English ever. Yeah, but which means that there is wow. another record that somebody hasn't actually done, which is to write a novel in English from Guinea-Bissau. Mm -hmm. So they've done the translation, mm -hmm. but nobody's ever written a book in English. So, and that was twenty seventeen. It's called the ultimate tragedy. Um, so yeah, you know, good <laughs> reads now. Yeah. yeah so uh, it's it's a real gap, and you know, the problem is now the African literature space, which I think mm -hmm. I think of it as very different from the wider literature context. And as I was saying, one of my articles, I've been to lots of festivals, African literature festivals, and you know, you call yourself Africa dot 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 but the thing is they're more likely to have a francophone element but lucifer africa is never ever represented you're speaking to someone from guinea bissau which i speak english and french and portuguese <laughs> i've had to make the effort to learn yeah. english right to be able to access these worlds so the yeah. least you could do is to try at least to find people that speak uh, the languages like I do, or for you to even learn the language, or to for you and you know, people in Lucifer Africa speak a myriad of languages that we don't just speak Portuguese. You know, some of us know how to speak English, so yeah, it's not that hard to send an email to do some research. You know, even like some of the articles I've written, I then when I was googling other things, I realized that some of the articles on Wikipedia were quoting me, my articles. Wow. Even though I my research was all on Wikipedia and other resources, now Wikipedia is quoting the articles because there's there's no English written material about Lucifer in Africa. <laughs> so you know so these spaces and I met publishers who are also saying, Oh, we really wanna publish and we'll do translations. But the issue is they're looking for a particular type of story. They ah. they want, you know, Lucifer um African stories, but what they're failing to see, there's something also that I think for publishers, it's important to mention. So there's a racial element that I suspect puts off certain publishers 
because they're looking for authentic African stories. And sometimes mm. some of the stories that what come does out authentic of, mean exactly some of the stories that come out of Lucifer Africa will feature uh, white characters, white experiences, yeah. or the writer himself will be white, I guess. So, um, and people feel uncomfortable, and this is why sometimes many people believe have this idea in Anglophone Africa that we have a more benevolent relationship with our ex-colonial mm. power. Mm. Um, because they think to themselves, but why do these people like to write, to talk, and to, you know, have these characters or uh, have these... For example, we were talking actually about this movie, uh, the Netflix movie called um, Palm Trees in the Snow, which mm-hmm. is... I've heard of it. Yeah, it, it's a love story set in Equatorial Guinea during mm-hmm. colonial times, and it's a Spanish guy who falls in love with this African woman. Now, these stories... Who's African what? African woman, uh, who's obviously... Um, I, I, I don't... I guess she, she is enslaved uh, and yeah. working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, these are... Most people sometimes feel like, oh, you know, uh, they're just trying to... They're just trying to make a situation... Uh, look through a situation to roast into glasses... But the truth is, actually, there are many love stories. There are love stories in Portuguese Africa like that. And Uh those are true stories. And people want to tell them. And that should be their prerogative because that is an authentic experience. So I mentioned my grandmother, for example. Uh, Her father was a Portuguese uh, Navy officer who came to Guinea-Bissau, met my great-grandmother, who at the time was like 18, probably much younger than that. But anyway, they entered a love relationship. It was truly love. Uh, she And he was married. So she said to him, when he was due to leave, she said, um, I don't want to be with a married man, you know, because he said to her, I'm willing to forego my family. I'm willing to, do, to stay here for you. She said, I don't want you to. So he left. And when he left, that's when she realized she was pregnant. She didn't know this at the time. And then she had to write him a letter saying, actually, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have your child. Um, And throughout the many years, you know, he never, he came back only once, I believe. Throughout the many years, my grandmother still had uh, these love letters that they had during, you know, most of her life where they would write. And he would always say, I love you so much. I miss you and all these things. And, you know, that's an authentic story. That's not it trying is. to it make it sanitary, you know. Have you read the letters? Have you seen them? Yes, yes, I have. I hope oh, it's wow. like in some family treasure chest where you can, you know, yeah. pass it down. <laughs> exactly. Generation. Yeah. You know, mm. so I think sometimes people are searching for a particular type of story. They, yeah, they're thinking. You know, when they're looking for a story in Nigeria, they, they want a similar story they'd find in Nigeria, but you can't find that in Lucifer Africa, you know, mm. because of other historical factors. And, yeah. you know, my experience, as much as I say I'm from Guinea-Bissau, you know, even though I was born in Portugal, I've lived only about three, three to four years. But I, I, part of my story is part of these love stories. It's part of this mixing and other things, you know. It's just who I am, you know. It's also in my blood. Um, mm-hmm. So it's something that I think people don't quite understand because they're looking for the, the authentic story. But 
this doesn't mean it's not authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was sorry, really quickly. I, it's, it's just really crazy to me. I think that we operate from a very skewed perspective sometimes is like you're looking for an authentic African story. You mm-hmm. have a certain African experience expecting that other people in other parts of Africa have the same experience as you. But it's like, no, they were affected by different things. They they have a different language, like culture is different. So mm-hmm. why would I expect or have this ideology that the stories would be similar like that? Doesn't that even insult the diversity that exists within our continent to even just make such have an expect? I don't know. I think I'm getting yeah. upset. Um and I need to pipe down. <laughs> well, th- well, I think it's also like seeing, trying this like strict formula for success. Like, mm. okay, Chinua Achebe's, um, why did I almost say Arrow of God? What's the one that he's known for? Things fall apart. <laughs> things fall apart. <laughs> I was saying Arrow of God because um, I just bought Arrow of God. But things fall apart. It's like, oh, that really worked. So we want other stories that kind of fit that box. Like, mm. oh my God, Chimamanda's Americana worked. So, oh my gosh, like, let's mm-hmm. look for stories that fit that box. Oh, you know, Mbolo Mbue's uh, novel works. Like, let's look for more of those immigrant stories. And so what happens, like, instead of looking for other diverse authentic stories it's like no this one worked so let's stick with this structure like let's look for more stories about people coming to america it's like no there are other stories but it's like oh this Mm -hmm. one works for this author so let's you know keep cranking out those kind of stories yeah yeah and the truth of the matter is that also when people don't know about places that there was the issue with even african books um why would a person in, in oregon United States want to read a story about someone in Nigeria, which they can't connect to, you know, that's what publishers thought. But now, you know, actually we've proven with authors like Shimamandichi that yes, someone in Oregon can want to read Americana or Purple Hibiscus mm-hmm. even. But mm-hmm. now we are back in the same dilemma with Lucifer in Africa. Right. Do, do we know where Santomay Principe is? Can we even pronounce the name of this unknown little country? Where is Guinea? I get people all the time asking me where Guinea-Bissau is or thinking it's Papua New Guinea, which is in Asia. Uh, you know, and uh, from Nigerians, by the way. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah. uh, so, you know, how, how do we then, how do we then market these books? Because, you know, people think, oh, but why would I, be interested by a story by a Cape Verdean person or someone in Mozambique. What? Who knows what happens in Mozambique, you know? What is even in Mozambique? So, but this is the thing, like, these countries are no different than any other place in Africa or any other place in the world. That's the truth. And it's human stories. We are just telling stories of people living and going about their business, right? Just like any other story. Like, where I got one of these books recently sent to me about this Swedish guy who moves to the rural area to become a sheep herder. I mean, if somebody can sell a book about sheep, uh, surely I can sell a book about somebody in Angola. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. That's really true. 
And that, that I mean, I think for me begs this idea of Pan-Africanism and what role, like, hmm. is Lusophone Africa incorporated into this concept of Pan-Africanism? Yes. Or, are we, or are we strictly, you know, sticking to these countries that are big, that are loud, that are obvious hmm. for whatever reason that it is? And, and is Pan-Africanism actually Pan-African? Yeah. Drag us. Drag us. Lucky yourself, drag in it. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's how yeah, I said drag us. I mean, but oh, we, do we need, need to, to be. Yeah. We need to. Yeah. I think we all the times, be. like, we can't keep pointing fingers at other people and not, yeah. you know, self reflect and evaluate where are we at as, as a continent, where are we as a, as a people. So. I yeah. agree. But, but that's what it means to, like, use your privilege to, like, come on. Because Nigerians, we're mad privileged. Like, yeah. you know, we have a lot of the spotlight on us. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it behooves us to say, actually, <laughs> this mm-hmm. is my fellow, you know, Bissau Guinean sister, like doing mm-hmm. this great work and sharing that. I think in you know there there are systemic, you know things in place. Like you know, uh, Yovanka, you were talking about you know lit- actual literary production. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are those systemic things in place, but there are also things as individuals that we can do to like amplify other voices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a que- I have like a question slash observation or whatever. I I, I read the. Guardian article about like racism in Portugal and mm-hmm. they mentioned sort of like the reverse traditional migration pi- patterns where a lot of yeah. Portu- white Portuguese people yeah. are moving to Lusophone mm-hmm. Africa. What is that about? <laughs> <laughs> is this some like <laughs> neo-colonial like what, what is this? They have, like servants and stuff so like my like the way I'm envisioning it is it like some sort of a recolonization? Yeah, recolonization. Like, like yeah, strange. what do you know about that Ivanka? Like how can you, you know do you can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I, it's not recolonization. It's actually um, a reversal of roles, I would say, because this is the beauty. This is the beauty of this immigration that's not happening, and really, it's not actually happening. It, I wouldn't say Lusophone Africa. Really and truly, it's happening to uh, Angola okay. and maybe Mozambique. If, I don't think any. I don't see many Portuguese people moving to Guinea Bissau. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely a reversal of roles because, you know, there was the financial crisis, of, I think it was in the in 2000s, uh, it really affected, you know, Portugal, Spain, Greece. Um, Angola has basically, as you might already know, is an oil producing country, extremely mm-hmm. rich, extremely rich. The, the riches of the rich are very rich. I wouldn't, yeah. It's not riches that extends to the rest of the population. But anyways, um, okay. so more, more and more Portuguese people are looking, can't find, there are no jobs in Portugal. That's the truth. Yeah. They're looking for jobs, yeah. and the option was to move to places like Angola, Mozambique, for opportunities. So yeah, so this is something that has been happening over the recent years, and it's very, very interesting. And mm. um, even many people are doing mm. research onto this. Yeah. So, Yvanka, just to, I mean, for, to everyone else, to just to wrap up the conversation, hey. um, are there any things you would charge us? Like, what any practical steps you feel like you know you would charge us with um, to go f- to go forth and do and spread the good news? <laughs> I mean, we're recording. I mean, we're recording this episode, but I don't know. You know, speaking of like next steps of amplifying, you know, Luciferine voices, you know, in literature, but also like in other areas. Um, that's one. And then to wrap up the conversation, I feel like instead of each of us going around to share 
what we're reading, listening, watching. Yovanka, not to put you on the spot, but I mean, I feel like throughout the episode, you have brought up a lot of suggestions and recommendations and dropped a lot of names. So I feel like it might be awesome for you to share like, oh, some Lucifone, you know, I don't know, essayist or poets. I know you did mention, so, you know, there are more poets and fiction writers um, or even musicians or TV shows. <laughs> yeah, all of the above. That was my question, actually, Fainware. So thank you for being in my brain. Hey, we're on the same wavelength, yeah. as always. <laughs> yeah. And but I'll just go through some of my favorite writers. So as I said, Mozambique, uh, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite writers, even though he's, from Port- he's a Portuguese settler descent. Mia Koto is an amazing writer. I mm-hmm. really recommend reading one of his books uh, is called The Confessions of the Lioness. Beautiful book. It's about mm. this hunter who's called mm. to this village that's being terrorized by lionesses. And in it, his book, it always presents you something, but it's never what it seems. So behind these attacks, there's something much more deep about it. And it talks about society, gender. It's very, very interesting. He also has another book called Sleepwalking Land which was turned into a movie, which you can check it out. Probably on YouTube, they must have the trailer. And he talks about the Mozambican consciousness, civil war. Mm-hmm. If you're into the visual arts, um, one of my favorite mm-hmm. artists is called Malangatana. He's also from Mozambique. Beautiful artwork, very vivid, very visual and colorful. I really recommend. His name is Malangatana. Mm-hmm. Um, in Angola, I'm going to shout out... Uh, music i love love i think it's the best way to start exploring mm-hmm. afro house or kuduru is to mm-hmm. check out buraka sound sistema mm-hmm. uh, they're on spotify actually so please check them mm-hmm. out um they're an amazing group i just love every all of their songs are just gold um <laughs> uh writers from there another white writer that he's extremely important to mention when it comes to Angolan literature. He's called Pepe Teller. Uh, Pepe Teller was actually somebody who fought alongside Africans in the War of Independence in Angola. Mm-hmm. And he has written a lot of books about that experience. Uh, he was an, a member of the MPLA. He's written extensively about Angola's political history. So even though he's white, I still think people should check him, check him out because he's really a giant of literature. But a black writer that I really like from Angola uh, is called Tony Jackie. He's actually based in the U.S. He's very, very good. Uh, so Jackie has a book that's very good. It's called Good Morning Comrades, which depicts 80s Angola. Uh, okay, so I'm going to to ever be translated into English. is by Abdullah Tila, and it's called The Ultimate Tragedy. Once mm-hmm. again, it's about gender, society, expectations, all set in the background of the war of independence. It follows this young girl who falls in love, etc. etc. It's a really, really good uh, book. Um, mm. Santa May, please to be, which my grandfather is from, and that's why I talk about it quite often. <laughs> but it's a beautiful, beautiful place, beautiful country, the most amazing poetry. Uh, in our last episode, on our last episode, which I think is episode... No, not the last episode of Not In A Book Podcast, but episode 10, I believe, which I'll tweet it at some point. 
I actually read a poem by this guy from something called Francisco Tenreiro. Um, the biggest writer to come from something is called Alva Spiritu Santo. She's a true icon. She is an incredible woman. Uh, she was one of the most, um, a prominent member for independence in Santo Tomé Principe. When there was a Basta massacre in Santo Tomé in 1953, she came back to her country and was got this lawyer from Portugal to come and help the victims of the massacre. She was the one taking down the notes, making sure that everyone was seeing the lawyer and getting justice. And at the, at the time, it was a really big thing. They actually managed to get Portugal to come down to their knees and to punish the guy who had ordered the massacre. And she went on to write uh, books of poetry. Uh, she became Minister of Culture in the Santomé Príncipe's uh, government. She really somebody you should uh, definitely check out. These are all names that, and uh, there are more names, of course, but these are some of the names that you can check out. And as I said, this is from an article I wrote for this platform called Africos, and it's called mm-hmm. Say What where are the black writers from Portuguese Africa? Um, and yeah, I think I think that's a really good place yeah. to start. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Amazing. That was in- that was actually incredible. That was a wonderful way to wrap up the episode. I so know. if you're listening, we have a mm. lot for you guys to like go. Yeah. No excuses. <laughs> to go check out exactly. No more excuses, but thank you so much, Yovanka, for, you know, making the time to talk with us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to my wonderful co-hosts for being here. (laughs) And we'll catch you guys next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.